Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello and welcome back to My 70s TV Childhood, the podcast which celebrates growing up in the UK during the wonderful decade which was the 1970s and recognises the part TV played in our lives. It's great to have you here. Once again, thanks for your comments and I'm so glad that many of you are enjoying listening to the show. Since our last episode, which featured public information films, I've been reassured to know that I was not the only primary school child in Britain to be traumatised by watching The Finishing Line, a graphic and rather grisly film which was aimed at keeping children off the railways. I've also been slightly disturbed by the number of listeners who haven't seen the film but would like to, to see what all the fuss is about. My advice to those listeners is, see it if you want, but don't say you haven't been warned. Although, given the passage of time, I suspect that its effects will be far less dramatic today than it was on those gathered in the school hall at Padgate Church of England Primary School circa 1978. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and all the other subjects we've touched on to date, as well as getting your thoughts on what you'd like to see featured in future episodes. You can find our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com. You can tweet me at 70s TV Childhood, or email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. Today, in the first of a number of episodes on the subject, we're going to talk about music and how that was shown on TV in My 70s TV Childhood. And if we're talking about music on TV in the 1970s, there is only one show we need to look at to start with. For half an hour on a Thursday night, the nation came to a halt, or at least that part born after the end of the war, and was gripped by the weekly rundown of the top 40 on Top of the Pops. Music was my first love, and it shall be my last, sang John Miles in the famous song, and I've always found music very powerful, and a thing which triggers emotions of all kinds. It allows me to put myself in a memorable time or a place by the attachments I have to certain songs or pieces of music. For me, much of my life has been accompanied by a soundtrack of evocative records, of which I only have to hear a snatch to be placed back in my younger self at any given time. My musical journey began shortly after birth in the way that most people's does. My mother was a great lover of music and she would sing nursery rhymes, silly songs and other things to me and my brother, from as early as I can remember. By the way, don't worry, this isn't going to turn into Desert Island Discs, and even if it was, as a poor solo podcaster, I can't afford the licence fees to actually play any music, so your and my imaginations will have to provide the soundtrack to my memories. I remember my sister who is four years older than me, and I had access to a record player from a very young age. I can't remember what make it was. 
I'm pretty sure it wasn't a dance set. But do remember, it was mainly plastic and came in a carrying case with a handle on it. It also had a central mechanism where you could stack seven-inch discs and it would play them in turn, having dropped the next one onto the turntable. It had three speeds, including 78 RPM, and it was an early example of my being fascinated by gadgets, something which would remain with me throughout my childhood and for the rest of my life. Unfortunately, my sister and I didn't have the most extensive record collection, at least not in my earliest memories. The records we had included the the Chipmunk's Christmas Song, featuring Alvin and his chipmunk pals crooning So Christmas Don't Be Late, Downtown by Petula Clark, Tonight from West Side Story, and the soundtrack album to the musical Oliver, And we also had an advertising record, which had been given to us by our Uncle Brian. By way of a quick explanation, both of my parents were born and brought up in Lee, a small town in Lancashire. And my paternal grandfather owned Leonard Collinganson, a gentleman's outfitters in the town, where he and my father's brother Brian worked. Uncle Brian had been given the record by what was then called the Commercial Traveller. And I think it was designed to be played as a background in the shop something I could never imagine my grandfather putting up with. So it ended up with me and my sister, who played it again and again, and as a result, I could still sing the jingle. <clears throat> feel appeal and I appeal, that's Enkelon Six Star Nylon. Do, 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 do. Feel appeal and I appeal, that's Enkelon Six Star Nylon. What Enkelon six-star nylon actually was, and why the gentleman of Lee needed to wear it, was not known to us at the time, but we still sang along very happily. Thinking about it now, Enkelon six-star nylon must have been used to make shirts. This is another topic altogether which many listeners will remember. Nylon was the material of the future, and we were all forced to wear nylon shirts and blouses at some point in the 1970s. I think there was also a trend for nylon underwear, but fortunately I wasn't subjected to that. I remember being made to wear the itchy, scratchy, very uncomfortable shirts, and I'm sure I'm not alone in thanking God that the fashion for nylon was relatively short-lived. What really makes me shudder is the memory of the shirt crackling with static electricity when you took it off. They may have been drip dry, but I for one do not mourn their passing. Like everyone, my musical journey has been a varied one, and often shaped by what happened around me. At school there was always a lot of music, from singing hymns in morning assembly, generally a mixture of old favourites like All Things Bright and Beautiful, and trendy modern hymns from the 60s like When I Needed a Neighbour and Kumbaya. We also sang a lot of folk songs, particular Lancashire ones for some reason. The Spinners, a Liverpool-based folk group, were very popular at the time, so most of their hits, like The Leaving of Liverpool, were part of the repertoire. My favourite of those was Ellen Vannon, a ballad about the sinking of an Island Man postal ship in Liverpool Bay, which I only learned as an adult wasn't a traditional Lancashire folk song at all, but had been written by the Spinners themselves. 
Oh, Ellen Vernon of the Isle of Man Company. Oh, Ellen Vernon, lost in the Irish Sea. But I digress. And not for the first time in this series, I hear you say. As a child and into your teens, your musical tastes are heavily influenced by those around you. And it's really important not to be into the wrong things. When you get to a certain age, you really don't care what anyone thinks about what music you like. So you can indulge your guilty pleasures without fear. If you want to listen to Take That and the Spice Girls, that's okay. But when you're young, certain musical tastes can definitely be seen as uncool. As well as Enkelon's six-star nylon, my musical tastes were influenced by the radio. As a small child, I listened to Junior Choice on a Saturday morning with Ed Stupot Stewart, who played a mix of current hits interspersed with staple children's favourites like Timey Kangaroo Downsport by Rolf Harris, Right Said Fred by Bernard Cribbins, Camp Granada by somebody who I can't remember, but I remember the words, Hello Mother, Hello Father, Here I Am It, Camp Granada, and so on and so on. And one of my favourites, Ronnie Hilton singing Windmill in Amsterdam. I saw a mouse, where? There on the stair. Where on the stair? Right there, a little mouse with clogs on. Uh, I'll stop now, I think. It was, like so many parts of Seventies childhood, very innocent and simple. Songs were interspersed with a barking dog called Arnold and a child shouting, Hello, darling. Harmless fun for children. But as I was to learn from about the age of six or seven, not really something to own up to listening to at school. No, from that age, my musical tastes were, in part, driven by what we saw on TV on a Thursday night on Top of the Pops. For our younger listeners, who've been brought up with wall-to-wall music videos and streaming on demand, our devotion to a weekly half-hour slot may seem a bit strange. But for my pre-MTV generation, pop music on TV happened on top of the pops, which I sat and watched with my sister every week. It was yet another of those shows from our three-channel, black-and-white, TV-watching 70s childhood, which unified families and was watched across the nation. In school the next day, we would discuss who had been on, what we thought of the performances, and, most importantly, who we thought would be at number one the following week. The format was very simple. The opening titles featured Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love, which I didn't know as a song in its own right until much, much later. The programme was presented by one or two Radio 1 DJs, most often Jimmy Savile, whose name is cropping up repeatedly in my memories of the 70s, simply because he was everywhere. And the likes of Dave Lee Travis, Noel Edmonds, Peter Powell and David Kidd Jensen. They would introduce half an hour of live performances by popular artists of the moment, based around the countdown of initially the top 20, and by the end of the decade, the top 40. And that was it, really. So what, you might think? Well, it was more than just a chart rundown. 
It dictated the nation's musical tastes and, vitally for the record companies, generated sales of singles for their artists. Apparently, the competition to get stars onto the programme was cutthroat, as being on the show could make a difference between having a hit single and not. When I said earlier that the performances were live, that wasn't strictly true, as almost all of the performances were mined to backing tracks, which was sometimes blindingly obvious when the words didn't sync with the singer's lip movements, or a debutante on the show lost their timing and ended up standing there looking embarrassed. The audience was made up of young people from across the country who'd had to apply to get on, which was no mean feat given that thousands of young hopefuls wanted to be there and to get on TV. There was also a resident dance troupe on the show. Pan's people were the first that I remember, but later on came Legs and Co, after a brief period of a rather odd dance troupe called Ruby Flipper providing the dancing. As a child, I found the dancing segments pretty tiresome and absolutely pointless, but I later learned the reason they were there was to go alongside records where the band or artist responsible couldn't or simply wouldn't perform on the show. Remember, this was a time before pop videos were a thing, so if the artist wasn't there, the only thing to fill the gap was the floaty shapes of Pan's people putting their own, how should I put it, unique artistic interpretation onto a hit record. This started to change late in 1975, when we were all amazed by Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. Nothing like it had ever been seen on Top of the Pops. Not only was the song about two and a half minutes longer than most of the records we were used to, but it was also accompanied by a video, and what a video it was. It was the talk of the playground for weeks in the run-up to Christmas and into the new year, eventually spending nine weeks at number one. Change was coming to Top of the Pops, but we didn't know it at the time. When Trevor Horn and the Buggles sang Video Killed the Radio Star in 1980, it turned out they were absolutely spot on. As a child, I do have vivid memories of a number of performers on the programme. The overtly sexual elements of glam rock went over my head as a seven-year-old, but I do remember watching bands like Slade, T-Rex, and one of my favourites as a child, The Sweet, doing their thing and thinking, wow, this is so exciting. The Sweet's hit Blockbuster was brilliant, although I did wonder why people with long black hair had better watch out, and not those with other hair colours. Other performances stick in my mind, include Mud, especially their festive hit, Lonely This Christmas. Sailor, singing Girls, Girls, Girls. Lieutenant Pigeon and their instrumental hit, Mouldy Old Doe. I also remember the shock of seeing Typically Tropical performing their hit Barbados on Top of the Pops and finding out that they weren't actually black at all. Another band I remember fondly, not just for the music, but for my sister's devotion to them, was the New Seekers. The jolly, folky pop style of the band brought them success with hits like I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing and Beg, Steal or Borrow. And they were always a good turn on top of the pops. But I remember my sister and a school friend of hers making a birthday card for the lead singer, Marty Christen. Simple pleasures, 
for simpler times. Looking back now, Top of the Pop seems like an unlikely hit show, but it was the only place where people of all ages could come together to listen to pop music, see their favourite bands and singers perform, and find out what was happening in the charts. For that reason, it became a national institution in the 1970s, as well as providing a glamorous escape from the real difficulties that many faced, given the harsh realities of what were pretty tough times for our country. The other thing it did was allow us to dream, for half an hour on a Thursday night, that we could be pop stars too. BBC Four has been showing vintage episodes of Top of the Pops for several years now, and they are well worth a watch. At one point, they tried to run certain years of shows to mirror the weeks of the year in which they were actually shown, which I thought was a great idea. But then came Operation Newtree, and all episodes featuring Jimmy Savile were removed. The later arrest of Dave Lee Travis, and the exclusion of any shows featuring Gary Glitter, meant that attempts to mirror whole chunks of 1970s editions of the show were doomed. Personally, I think that was a mistake. We now know the terrible acts committed by Savile and Glitter, but that doesn't change the fact that these shows happened and were broadcast, and I believe audiences are savvy enough to be able to watch these programmes and come to their own conclusions. Changing history by excising the parts we feel uncomfortable about recalling is a dangerous path for any society to follow. Notwithstanding that, the fact that many of these shows remain in the archives and are rerun regularly is a great thing, and I recommend you catch some of the shows if you can. All it takes is the opening bars of a theme tune, and I'm transported back to lying on the carpet on a Thursday night in Warrington, waiting for half an hour of escapism. I'd love to hear your memories of Top of the Pops, and of the other shows we've discussed in the series so far. You can comment on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com, tweet me at 70stvchildhood, or email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. Music is a very evocative medium, and it brings back all sorts of memories for me of times and places, particularly during my childhood. We'll have more about the power of music and the memories it brings in future episodes, but that's it for now. Thanks for joining us, and see you again soon on My 70s TV Childhood. If you've enjoyed listening, and want to support the show, you can do so by visiting my Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash Oliver where you will find details of our membership tiers. For £2 a month, you can join the Tufty Club, get a shout out on a future episode, and learn how to cross the road safely, even when your mummy and daddy aren't there. Or for £5 a month, you can be a Blue Peter Badge member 
and as well as getting a shout out, you can be my guest on a future episode and also stroke Petra, Patch, Shep, Jason and Goldie and also see Frieda the Tortoise's hibernation box. All memberships are totally flexible and can be cancelled at any time. My sincere thanks for your support.